Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. And as I began at the very beginning of this month, this month that is the Sanctity of Human Life Month, and made a commitment to you at the beginning of this month that we would deal with these very difficult issues of life. And difficult not from the sense of these shouldn't be issues at all for us in our culture, but difficult in that we as a church, you know, not just as human beings, but even as Christians, have to deal with the fact that we have failed to act in many areas. We have failed to defend life in many areas. And so it's my hope today that we can start to sort of bring this discussion, not necessarily to a close because it shouldn't be confined to a month, but start to put a bow on it, if you will, to say, okay, here's the pro-life package, if you will, of us as believers. These are the things we have to deal with. These are the things we have to know that the gospel would compel us to live our life in a way where we are addressing these very real issues that are going on in our culture. And so I pray that today we would be able to accomplish some of that work, that we would leave here never feeling condemned, right? I mention that often, that those who are in Christ Jesus, we're not condemned. There's no condemnation. But I do pray that we would leave here today feeling challenged, being able to walk away with maybe one thing. And I would ask you guys to be already in your own hearts, praying throughout the course of the service to say, Lord, what is that one thing for me? What is it that if you were to leave today, maybe you know, this is what the Lord has been speaking to me about, that I need to get involved in this. I need to do something about this. I need to advocate for this. I need to take a step of faith, be obedient to what he's called me to, and start to take action in a particular area of life and defending life. And so that's my hope and our goal for us today. It was an amazing week, as I've already said. We had the opportunity at the beginning of the week to start off with a trip to the Museum of the Bible. I don't know how many of you have stayed kind of in tune with that, with the Museum of the Bible and its opening here this past fall. It's an absolutely incredible facility in and of itself. And then the content there is amazing. I've never, as somebody who has gotten an undergrad in biblical studies and I'm working on my master's, I would take any class through the Museum of the Bible, especially some of the exhibits, as just incredible ways to get like a 30-minute tutorial on the history of the Old Testament. I mean, the Museum of the Bible does such an incredible job of laying out and making the Bible make sense in such a kind of a compact and real way that I would encourage all of you to go to that. In fact, while we were there and through the whole week, Ashley and I were thinking, we need to do a church family vacation. We need to say, okay, we're going to take three or four days and load up some 15 passenger vans and go to D.C., not only because it's a cool city, but to go to the Museum of the Bible, to see some of the historical parts of Washington, D.C. that really tie back to our foundation as a country. From the Museum of the Bible, we went from there to the Holocaust Museum. That was a very different experience and feel in many ways, but of course it also ties in as well as you consider just the, the history of God's people. I've made several trips to the Holocaust Museum, and that was a sobering end to the day. And then from there to step right into the pro-life conference, to be exhorted to defend life and, and, and to look at the Word of God and what it says about how we are, as believers are to live, it was an incredible week just to be confronted with the work of God throughout history the message of the Word of God, God's desire to have a relationship with His people, to see how sin has distorted that, to see how sin has damaged that, but to see also hope at the same time of restoration. Right? And so 
Again, I thank you so much for praying for us throughout this week. It was a great time, and I think you'll see very clearly how it even weaves its way into our time here in the Word today as we pick back up in the book of Acts in chapter 22. And so I'd welcome you now to turn to Acts chapter 22. We'll pick back up with a little bit of review in verse 17. And again, I would emphasize here as we pray first before we go to the Word that I would ask you to allow the Lord today to be searching your heart, because even over the last couple of weeks, I've had people come to me after service and share what the Lord has put on your heart. So there are some of you sitting here today, and you know who you are, who have said, the Lord has really put this on my heart. This is an area I think I want to serve in. This is something I want to commit to. And so the Lord is doing that work. Many of you are taking active steps of faith and saying, hey, I'm going to invest in a particular area of ministry, of whatever it is, something that you feel the Lord is calling you to, to be actively engaged in defending life. And if maybe you haven't gotten there yet, that you would be saying, okay, Lord, show me. Show me what it is for me. What is it that you desire of me? Where do you want me to be serving? And so with that, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. As always, Lord, your word, which you exalt above your own name, that we have the opportunity here today to study, to learn from. Lord, we pray that through your spirit, Lord, you would teach us here today, that you'd pierce hearts and minds. We recognize, Lord, that we need a transformation of our hearts, Lord, of our minds. That, Father, to serve you and to see the change that we desire to see within our culture, that all of it, Lord, it rests upon the foundation of the Word of God. It rests upon the gospel. It rests upon that message of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us and for our sins. That without that, without salvation, all these other efforts are futile, Lord. And so we recognize first and foremost the importance of your word, but then from there, what your word would compel us to, the fruit of salvation, the works that come from those who love you, and how, Lord, you would desire for us to live our lives, the things that we should be involved in as we profess to be believers. And so, Lord, I pray as we go to your word, teach us. But Father, work in our hearts here today, and for everyone here, myself included, that we would be so surrendered to you that we could hear from you and that we would know, Lord, what it is that you're calling us to, what it is that you desire of us, Lord, how you would have us to live, how you would have us to advocate, because there are so many issues regarding life, Lord, and we may not be individually, Lord, we may not be able to address them all, but collectively we can. If we follow after you, if we engage in the areas that you call us to, Lord, if we're obedient to that, we can see an impact on these things, Lord. And so I pray, help us in that effort here today. Father, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks for this time. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so again, here today, today is the day which we recognize the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And so this is the true sanctity of human life Sunday today. It's a month overall that we put attention on these issues of life. But today, many churches around the country are addressing the issue of life, and they're addressing things related to the 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade. And we have done some of that already from the beginning of the month. We kicked things off with a visit from Lighthouse for Life, the human trafficking organization. I know many of you were moved by that. You were surprised by that. You're seeking to maybe get involved in some way there with helping, with advocacy. Last week, we had an incredible testimony from Wendy and a little bit of information about Daybreak Ministries. And so today, it's not my intent to try and dive more into the issue of abortion, as it were, because that is one piece of the pie as we consider life, as we consider the dignity of human life, as we consider the sanctity of all human life. Now, 
in terms of things that we encountered throughout our week in D.C., things that we learned. We had the opportunity to talk with some of our representatives in the House, senators, to hear from a couple of senators. I feel confident walking away from this week that, and I don't say this from a wishful thinking perspective, I think Roe v. Wade in our country, I think it's going to be overturned. I don't think we will see that as law much longer. Science doesn't support it. Science is getting better and better. The law itself is a bad law. It's just not good law. And so I think there's some that may not even be all that pro-life that look at that and say it's kind of foolishness. Now, I say that without getting too excited because the reality is even if we overturn that, if it's no longer law in our country, it doesn't mean that the idea of abortion has become unthinkable to us. It's just that we don't have a law that says that you can do it. For it to become unthinkable means that we need to change, that we need the Lord to change hearts and minds. That's how we can change the culture of life in our country. Right? And so we can't, as we profess to be pro-life, and you should, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you should profess to be pro-life. In that, we can't just focus on that one element, as important as it may be. We've got to focus, as you've heard me say, on life in the full spectrum, from that point of conception till the very last breath, is how the church must engage in the issues of life. And that was a major message of this week that continued to reinforce how we as the church should look at that. And throughout the Word of God, we see the issue of life addressed, and we see that here in the book of Acts, and we touched on this briefly last week, and we'll use it for our springboard to continue that discussion here today again. And so picking back up in verse 17, we read, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. This is Paul speaking in verse 18, And saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So there's a few things that we need to unpack here in this section, but we also need to remember about where Paul is at at this point. If you've been with us consecutively for the past several Sundays, you should be fairly well caught up. I have no doubt that you remember everything that you've heard over the last several weeks, right? It's okay. No, we forget things, right? But let's recap, let's refresh on where we've been over the last several weeks. Where is Paul at this point? He's in Jerusalem. Did people think that he should go to Jerusalem? No. Why not? They knew he was going to be in prison. They knew that this was going to happen to him. So let's think about that. Paul is on his third missionary journey. This is his final missionary journey, by the way. I think Paul has a sense of that. He stopped off to see the elders in Ephesus, brought them to him, called for them, said, come see me by the seashore. He wasn't going to go all the way into Ephesus. He met with them and he communicated with them in such a way that it was very clear. Paul understood, I am nearing the end of my journey and I've got to go to Jerusalem. He said that he was bound to go there. He knew that he had no choice but to go to Jerusalem, that the Holy Spirit had told him such, that he was being called there. But people rightly understanding what it was that the Holy Spirit was saying to them in that Paul, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound in chains. He is going to be imprisoned. They took that, though, and wrongfully interpreted that to mean that he shouldn't go. That's the thing we have to understand here, that Paul is in a situation that he anticipated. He knew this was what it was awaiting him. He knew that he was going to be going into a situation where he was going to be imprisoned and bound in chains, but he went anyway. 
We cannot forget that, Christian. We cannot forget the fact that Paul knew what he was going to. And what did Paul say about that? Remember this critical verse. If we look back at chapter 20, in chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, and many of us have heard this, this may be a memorization verse for you. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What we have to remember about Paul here was he was a man on mission who understood what he was called to. And for us, Christian, we have to remember that as we consider the message here today. Because no doubt what I have to share with you today will challenge you a little bit. I hope that it does. And in the midst of that, what we have to remember is this mindset that Paul had where he said, I don't count my life dear to myself. None of these things move me. And we must, we must, as believers that live in the United States of America, recognize that though we may have even taken a great effort to not be this way, by our simple presence here, we have lost perspective and we have lost sight of what it means to sacrifice. We count our lives far too dear to ourselves. And it prevents us from experiencing what it is that God wants to do in our lives and how he wants to use us. Now, please do not misunderstand me. It does not mean that we cannot enjoy some of the things that this world has to offer, the things that the Lord has blessed us with. But we better have a loose grip on those things. And our desire to follow after Jesus Christ must be so much stronger than our desire for the things of this world. We have to allow the Lord to do that work in our hearts. We have to grapple with that. We have to wrestle with that such that we can get to a place where we can say, yes, Lord, I don't care about any of it. I don't care about what I have to go through. I don't care about what I might lose. I don't care about what I might have to sacrifice. The only thing that I care about is following after you. And I promise you, Christian, that we can get to that place. Now, it may require that we go through that exercise on a daily basis. It may absolutely require that when we wake up in the morning, we have to go through the same routine all over again. But we have to do it. If we want to be genuine in our faith, if we want to truly live for the Lord, we have to do that. We have to be willing every day to say, Lord, whatever, I'm yours, and I'm willing to sacrifice, and I'm willing to be uncomfortable. We have such a taste for comfort and safety that I fear we're missing out on so much of what the Lord can do with us. And so that is foundational to what we're seeing with Paul here is that he had that mindset, he had that heart. You know, for us, we'd look at this and we'd think, if there was one of you here today, and you said, I feel like the Lord is calling me to go to, the Lord's calling me to go to North Korea, right? If you were to say, yes, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's where I'm supposed to go, and here's the open door for that, here's where he's leading me, this is how I'm going to get there, this is who I'm going to work with while I'm there, all of these pieces are lining up we would be inclined, would we not, to come around that person and say, no, that's foolishness. Don't go. Don't go. You're going to die. You're going to be in prison. There's something that's going to happen to you. Now, again, we're going to have to think big picture through this message here today, because this is not me telling you, let's pack up and go to North Korea. But here's what I will tell you. The Holy Spirit could do that work. God may be calling someone to that. And if he is, well, then you need to be willing to go. Now, along the way, you go to the Word. You compare that call with the Word. You spend time in prayer. You fast. You seek the Lord. 
But if he continues to confirm and he opens the door and he paves the way and he gets you the resources and everything continues to fall in line, well, then you follow after him. But that's not our mindset, is it? We would want to say, no, don't do that. That's foolishness. And then if they do go and then they're imprisoned, we would say, see, we would. I have. I mean, I've said that about people before, but shame on me. I'm no different than those other brothers and sisters that tried to keep Paul from going exactly where he knew the Holy Spirit wanted him to be. We have to have a changed mindset. And again, we got to hear from the Lord too, okay? We got to hear from the Lord in his word. We can't go running off and saying, well, this is great when he's closing doors and and you're not seeing that he's saying, no, don't go here. Remember, there were other times when he told Paul not to go. Places that Paul wanted to go, and the Lord said, no. So we've got to follow after him. But this was the heart of Paul. And then what we see here happening in this particular passage is that Paul so badly wanted the opportunity to share the gospel with his brethren. What he's recounting here is this is when he's sharing his testimony, if you remember. So now he's sharing his testimony with the mob that had just tried to take his life. They had just beat him up. The Roman guards came and took him out of there. They had to carry him up the stairs. On his way up the stairs, he says to the guard, Sir, may I have a word? And the guard, so taken back by here, this bloodied, beaten guy has such well-articulated Greek that he pauses for a second and says, I didn't expect that to come from you. What is it that you want? And he says, let me go back out there and address them again. And even more now, he's saying, well, you've got to be crazy that you want to go out and talk to the mob that just tried to kill you. But Paul says, no, I want to go talk to them. This is my opportunity. And so he goes back out there and he shares with them his testimony. And this is within his testimony that he's explaining to them how he was radically saved and what the Lord had called him to. But we see within here that he's having a conversation, if you will, with the Lord as the Lord is calling him to get out of there quickly after his conversion. But Paul's saying, I'm the perfect candidate to preach the gospel to the Jews. To my brethren, let let me stay here and do this. If you remember in Romans chapter 9, the first three verses, what Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So not only is Paul this guy who's willing to go anywhere, that the Lord is calling him to go, even if it means loss of his own life. But here he's saying, essentially, I'll go to hell if I see them saved. Take me, not them. He had such a heart for them. The problem was here is the Lord was saying to him, it's not your time. This isn't where I want you to be. I want you to go here instead. And so Paul was obedient to that. He was willing to go where the Lord called him to go. But the question we must ask ourselves as we see here, we had another incredible example from the Apostle Paul as Christian. Are you broken? Are you as broken as Paul was over the lost? Are we broken? Would we be willing to say that? Do we know of people in our lives? Do we know of people who are lost, who are unsaved? I'm not willing like Paul to say, I wish I was cursed for their sake. Can I just be transparent with you this morning? I'm looking forward to being in eternity with Christ. I have a mindset, though, that it's kind of like, hey, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do everything I can to try and help out here, but by golly, I'm going to protect this. I'm going to make sure my way is good, that I'm there, right? That he would break our hearts the way Paul's was broken for the lost. 
Russell Moore was one of the speakers this week. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. Does really great work. And he said this of the pro-life community, that salvation, not just winning, is the goal of the pro-life movement. He said, and that's what we have to consider as we consider being pro-life is it's not about legislation. It's not about getting this pushed through. It's not about having this victory here or, or this victory here, but it's about salvation. That's what it means to be pro-life foundationally is that you have a passion to see people saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That to be pro-life means to be above all pro-salvation. Yet there are those in our society, our communities, who are invisible to us, who we feel justified in overlooking, ignoring, or even condemning. And they're the ones who need the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know who God has raised up to give them that truth? Us. You. Me. But in our disobedience, we hold back. Paul was obedient. Yes, he was arguing a little bit with God. Listen, if you're ever arguing with God, you know who's going to win, right? Do we know that? Can we say that together? Yeah, we're foolish still, and we still argue with God, but just know when you are. When you know, hey, God has called me to something, and I'm pushing back, have fun with that, right? Have fun with that. Paul was called to minister to people, but to the Gentiles first. And while he may not have wanted that, he was willing to go. And so I'd ask you, who are you called to minister to? That maybe you don't want to. Maybe you're not broken for them yet, but they need to hear the gospel. We're called in the Word of God to minister to the least of these. But are we? Listen, I'm not never trying to be condemning, okay? How many times have I said that when I teach from a particular place, I'm because the Lord's done that work in me first. But we applaud for the chili cook-off, because by golly, we love the chili cook-off. That's a good time. There's good food. But do we applaud for the state house prayer? Do we say, yes, I'm going to be there? Listen, if you have something you need to do, do it. Go. I mean, listen, it's not about me hijacking your lives and saying that, well, hey, this is no longer important. I'm going to deem what's important in your life. But I am going to say that if you're just sitting on your butts at home, then well, you better get off those butts and get downtown and see what the Lord does as we go and we pray for the leaders over our state and we have the opportunity, which we will inevitably while we're there, to share Christ with somebody. That when we have outreaches, you go because you know, hey, this is what the Lord would have me to do today or whatever that is. What is it that the Lord is calling you to? We've got to be willing to go and to do it that we would be as excited for every opportunity the Lord gives us, regardless of whether it's the chili cook-off or it's an outreach to the homeless in Finley Park. We've got to be excited about that, and we've got to be willing to go. And here's the thing. This is where it really starts to get heavy as we consider the Word of God, and we started to touch on this last week. In verse 22, what happens here is that the mob that's listening to him intently, they said, his Hebrew is good. This guy's educated, more educated than I anticipated he was. We're going to listen to this guy for a while until he said one word. And in verse 22, and they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth where he is not fit to live. What was that one word? But Gentiles, that one word, at the hearing of that word, of the word Gentile, they lost it. Such was their hatred for the Gentiles that they could not bear the thought of such individuals coming to faith and being equal with them. They couldn't accept Gentiles who would be at the same level 
Now, they could accept Jews that became Christians, even though it wasn't very popular. They didn't make a big deal of that, as Paul was speaking. They could accept Gentiles becoming Jews, going through a process, a legalistic process, and say, okay, now I can welcome you as a Jew, but not a full Jew, sort of less than me still. But to suggest that they, through faith in Jesus Christ, could be at the same level as me, not coming through the law or anything else of that nature? Not just, oh, that can't be. Not just, oh, I hate the idea of that. No, take this man away right now and kill him. That the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ is available to all, and in him we are equal. The response is away with him. The one who proclaims such a thing, they said, is not fit to live. The response is to kill Paul, to destroy this idea. They didn't just dislike this idea. They wanted to eradicate this idea. And this was true hatred, friends. This was pure racism. The idea that they had, we are better than you, fundamentally. But here's the deal. Before we get too carried away with our disgust and our disbelief over this, we must consider this in a modern sense against the backdrop of our own pro-life ethic. And maybe you want to say about this here that, hey, I get this. This was wrong. I can look at this and understand that the Pharisees, Sadducees, they were wrong. And maybe you look at this and you say, this isn't me. That's not my heart. I surely would respond differently in that same situation. But I would submit to you this morning that there may be one word that you'd react to. That maybe there's a point in my message this morning. I hope it hasn't already happened. But maybe as we continue to go here, there might be one word that you turn from listening intently to shutting your ears and saying away with him, if only in your heart and in your mind. What if I started with millennial? Let's just start easy. The millennials. We all know of the millennials. I sit on the edge. And because of that, I choose not to identify as a millennial. So I'm guilty too. To the millennials in here, we love you. Those in our generation, the millennials who have no social graces, are always on their phones. They want a participation trophy. Little reverence for traditional church. I could go on and on of all the different labels we've given millennials. What if I told you that we were going to completely transform and change everything in this church to cater to and minister to millennials? How would you feel about that? Would you suddenly feel entitled? Would you suddenly feel like you wanted to find another church or look for another church that better ministered to you and to where you're at and and spoke to you and gave you opportunities to serve where you feel comfortable? Well, brother or sister, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe your concern should be less about whether the church caters to what you need and instead caters to a lost generation. Is that how we think about it? Because whether we like it or not, the millennials are going to be running this country for the next few decades, and I sure would like it if they were all saved. Do you know that millennials are what is proving to be the most pro-life generation yet? Not because of their love for Jesus Christ, but because of science. Because science has become so advanced that they can't deny what science is telling us about, yeah, that's life. When they see the amazing 4D ultrasounds and they go, I don't get it. Looks like a baby, right? I mean, that's what the advancements of science have given us. And who created science but God? It's all about Him and His creation. So it makes sense. But many of them are lost. And they have a great distaste for religion because they see it as inauthentic. And I tell you what, I hate religion too. But unfortunately, because of that, many of them are never going to decide to just simply go into a church. 
because it's there, they're not going to look at Calvary Chapel on the side of the building and say, hey, let's go check it out. Now they may, the Spirit draws one, right? It happens, but by and large, blanket statement, we've got to figure out how we can take the church to them to see them saved and perhaps contribute to the next great awakening in this country, that it could come through them the same way it came through the hippies because people thought the same thing about them. There's not a game plan to just transform everything in the church to appeal to a millennial. But we have to ask ourselves, in what ways should we? How do we go about doing this? What do we need to do? Because the message never changes, but the method may. Or might we just say, nah, we walked to school both ways in the snow uphill, right? Let's make them come to us. And we laugh at that. We jest at that. And I'm not picking on anybody, okay? I'm not. Because I've been guilty of some of the same exact things. But sometimes that's our heart. We need to allow the Lord to search our hearts to identify the biases that we don't want to admit that we have. Because you know what? Maybe, maybe millennial is too easy. Perhaps millennial isn't your word. Perhaps I didn't get a, a trigger there, a, a reaction. Maybe your word is Democrat or liberal, pro-choice. Maybe it's homosexual or transgender. Maybe it's immigrant, Muslim refugee. Maybe I hit a nerve somewhere in there, and I'm not suggesting that I did. I'm not trying to be edgy for the sake of being edgy, but I know these words in our culture today elicit a significant response. And when I say culture, I mean church culture, and it must be taken before the Lord and surrendered to Him. Because can I declare to you this morning that every individual, whether labeled as such, or self-identified, is made in the image of God. Every one of them made in the image of God, and because of that, they have value, they have purpose, and they are not beyond the grace and the mercy that is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we, the church, will not fight for them, if we will not advocate for them, if we will not say, hey, listen, the way in which we are handling this situation is wrong and is entirely inconsistent with the Word of God that compels me in my life and my actions, if we don't do that, if we're the ones that, if we won't fight, who will? At the beginning of this month, I gave you a list of various aspects of the pro-life movement that we must consider that are different than what we've considered for a long time in terms of simply being about those that advocate for life in the womb. And so we must, we must continue to recognize the preborn children and the tragedy of abortion. Absolutely. I firmly believe Roe will be overturned, but we've got to continue to fight that effort. This week, you've got an opportunity on Wednesday. On Wednesday of this week at our state house is Personhood Day. What Personhood Day is geared towards is to highlight the personhood bill that is both before the House at a national level, but also here in the state of South Carolina. Last year, the personhood bill for the state of South Carolina passed three to five in the Subjudiciary Committee, and it's going to go before the Senate and be signed into law, provided that paperwork makes it to McMaster's desk. He's made a commitment to that. What is personhood all about? It says that at conception, that is a person. And because of that, they are due all of the rights of the Constitution, same as any of us. That's huge. Are you going to be there on Wednesday to advocate for that? Some of you may have to work. I understand that. If you have the ability to be there on Wednesday, then you need to ask yourself, Lord, would you want me to be there? No, okay, all right, I'll stay right here. No, give it a little bit more time than that, and I'm pretty confident that he's going to show you that, yes, 
Because to not speak is to speak. To not act is to act. And so be there. Be there on Wednesday and advocate. Do you know that the senators we heard from this week, they said, do you know how many calls they need into their office to begin to take action on an issue? Think, just think of a number in your mind. How many people, how many of their constituents do you think need to call them before they start to take notice and say, okay, I'm going to dig into this further? Six. That's it. Six phone calls to the office of your senator and their staff will begin to say, hey, there's a representative sample in our area. We need to look into this further. Six. Do you know how easy it is to make those phone calls? It's very easy. In fact, on our Take Action page on the website, we can probably add a few of the contact numbers there. There's all sorts of information on our Take Action page there that can clue you into different organizations that are advocating on our behalf, where they make it really simple sometimes that all you have to do is click a button and it sends a letter from you. But we can put the phone numbers on there as well because it's so fast, it's so easy. Are you willing to take action there today? And and let me tell you, that's an easy one, but if that's what you walk away with today, if you say, okay, I'm going to start there. I will be involved and I will advocate in that way. If that's what you're called to, then great. Go after it and give it your best. Give it your all. We must encourage and support adoption and orphan care. That's another aspect of the pro-life movement is adoption and orphan care. Do you know that there's approximately 100,000 kids and teenagers in the U.S. foster care system today? Right? About 100,000 that are waiting to be adopted. How many churches are there in the United States? Approximately 300,000 registered churches. Do you understand the problem with the math there? So do you mean to tell me that if one out of every three churches had one family that said, we'll do it, we'll adopt this child, that we could take care of the orphans in our country just like that? I heard it said this week what a headline that would be. Christian church in America adopts every orphan. Now, do you think that's going to be easy to do in practice? Do you think that bringing a 15-year-old into your home who's been in the foster system for a lengthy period of time is going to be easy and just a cakewalk? No, it's not. Okay, let's be real about that. It won't be. Does that mean that we shouldn't do it? Does that mean that God's not telling you to do that? Now, it's not for all of us to do that. You know, I'm one of those people that there's been times in my life, and my parents who are here can attest to that, that it's like, oh, let's do that well, let's do that too. And then let's do that. Sure, that sounds great. Let's do it. With a little discernment as to maybe this is what the Lord wants us to do right now and not all these other things. So you may be like that too. Seek the Lord regarding that, but maybe there is a family in this church. Maybe there's one or maybe there's two. Let's say there's one family in this church and the Lord has been speaking to you about adoption domestically through the foster system, that you have felt it on your heart that you need to do that, you need to contribute. Can we be a church that at least does that step? Can we do that? Is there a family here today? And I'm not looking for a response right now, but you said, yes, the Lord has called us to that. And then as a church family, we can come around you and can say, guess what? We're going to help to make this happen. What's the financial implication of that? Let's all pull together our resources and figure out how to make that happen. What supplies do you need? What resources do you need? Do you need a crib? Do you need this? Do you need that? But as a church family, we would say, yes, let's do this. We must value and minister to those with special needs. We must put an end to human trafficking. We need to promote racial reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may I submit to you that that one in particular to me begins with the valuing of life in its most vulnerable form. That if we're not saying that all life is equal in every phase, then we're never going to truly achieve that reality that we desire. We must eradicate poverty. 
and death from preventable disease. You know, we all want social reform to address poverty, and we want to fault the government for their failures in these areas. Christian, the government is failing at addressing poverty and many things like that because it's not supposed to be them that's dealing with it. It's supposed to be us. If the church was functioning the way the church is supposed to function, we wouldn't need that in place. And if that puzzles you, if you think initially, if your reaction is sort of like, no, I I don't know, consider it. (laughs) Take it to the Word of God and consider that. We must engage in prison ministry. I had someone come to me last week after I mentioned that, said, hey, I'm in. I want to be involved in the prison ministry. We heard from someone who was released, who was incarcerated a couple of times. They're now, uh, they've gotten their Masters of Divinity now from Moody. They're a pastor now. And, you know, they talked about all the different programs that were offered for them in between their incarceration. But the thing that made the most difference was the church saying, come have a seat at my dinner table. That he said the most impactful thing for him as he was released from prison was not the program and the resources that were made available to him, but families that were willing to say, you can have a seat at our table. And what he began to learn in that setting was what a family looked like, how it functioned, what male leadership in the home was all about, what it meant to pray together and to have arguments, but work through it. People gave him a lot of vulnerability or they were transparent in their homes and allowed him to come into that. And he said it transformed his life. That's what the church should do. Immigrants and refugees. Listen, I'm guilty of this same thing, that we can very easily get ourselves to a place when we consider the refugee crisis and we can say, oh, look at what the news has shown us. It's just a bunch of young men that are trying to come into our country and we can't allow that to happen. Where are all the women and the children? We're going to refuse our refugees. We're not going to allow them in because that's dangerous. And then we get ourselves firmly in a place where we say, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't have to deal with that anymore because I've addressed my own conscience as it relates to they clearly are people who shouldn't be here. What we speculate about some of those refugees may absolutely be the case. I'm not standing before you here today trying to get all political and saying, hey, we shouldn't do this or we shouldn't do that. Listen, I am all for our government doing their job to protect our borders. I'm not going to fault them for that. That's the role of the government is to take care of the people in that way. I am not against vetting refugees as they come into the country and making sure that if we find something out about somebody that should cause them not to be here, that we shouldn't listen to that. But if we want to fool ourselves into thinking that the refugee crisis is purely about young men who are coming to take over our country, we are wrong. There's 80,000 women and children in Jordan right now in tent camps that desperately want to come here and need help. And by and large, and when I say we, I'm not even talking about the country. The church, by and large, has done nothing about it. And I sit back and I listen and I think to myself, Lord, what have I done? What have I done about that? Do you want me to do something about that? What can I do about that? How do I do it? I've got to deal with that. I've got to figure that out. You know, these may be unpopular things, you know, compared against what we're hearing in the media or what politics is telling us, but we're not called to be popular. We're not called to be political. We're called to follow Jesus Christ. And by extension of that, we're called to look at the Word of God and say, what does this say about how I should live, how I should act? Listen, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say I'm against all of the things that one would expect that perhaps a conservative would be for in our country. Those should by and large be, in many cases, separate issues, though. And even more so, we need to ask ourselves, how much time do we spend advocating for something that's political as opposed to something that is about the Word of God? We may build a wall on the southern border of this country. It may be the right thing to do, but we by golly, had better if we put something more secure there 
be willing to stand on that wall and look out, and if we see injustice, do something about it. We have to. We have to be willing to address those things as the body of Christ. The world as a whole will largely decide whether or not to follow Jesus in part by what they see in us and in the church. And so we must ask ourselves, how are we representing him? The Jews at this point, they continued to just transform back into this ugly mob and and completely lose their minds at the thought of Paul ministering to the Gentiles. At this point, we'll cover this more verse by verse next week, but at this point, then the Roman guards, they take Paul out of there and they say, we're going to scourge him. Just what they did to Jesus, not a whipping, not a lashing. They're going to scourge him. Cat of nine tails designed to rip the flesh off of his body that will get us a confession that will help us to understand what we need to understand about this man, who he is, and what he's doing. Because they said, we see no wrong in him here and what he said, so they're going to scourge him to get his confession. At this point, Paul rightly drops on them the fact that he's a Roman citizen. And this causes the guards to freak out and think, how can this guy be a Roman citizen? We wouldn't have ever thought that, but he is, and so he needs to be treated in a different way, and this is going to then begin his course towards Rome, that place that Paul said he wanted to go, that he wanted to see. And we'll talk more about how he addresses the Sanhedrin next week. And so we'll go through the end of this chapter and the beginning of chapter 23 next week, but there's a verse that I do still want to hit on here, that as Paul's continuing to make his way through this journey, as he's facing persecution, as he's dealing with the reality of the fact that we know he's going to be in prison through the end of his life now, and he's wrestling with whether or not he's represented the Lord well, did the message that he shared with the people, did it get through? Because it didn't seem like it did. It seemed like it was just an angry mob. What could he have done differently? He probably feels like he screwed it up. But Jesus comes to him again and says to him in verse 11 of chapter 23, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Be of good cheer. In the Greek, this was one word. And so it's used five times in the New Testament. It's just when we say be of good cheer, it's, it's one word in the Greek. And there's a few other places where it's used. Jesus told the paralyzed man, the bedridden paralyzed man, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you in Matthew 9, 2. In Matthew 9, 22, he told the woman with the 12 year of bleeding, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Jesus told his disciples on the Sea of Galilee as they were frightened, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. He tells his disciples the night before his crucifixion, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And he tells Paul here, as Paul's considering what will be a very difficult end to his life. Be of good cheer. You've been faithful. Christian, I want us to hear, and even in the midst of our trials, as difficult as it may be, that if we align our hearts with the Lord Jesus Christ, and by extension of that, if we align our hearts with Paul, if we look at the life that Paul lived, and we can say, if we can get to a place where we can say, I do not count my life dear to myself. None of these things move me. If we get to a place where we're saying, okay, Lord, yes, I may have to sacrifice some comfort. I may have to sacrifice some safety. But your word compels me to take action on these issues of life in our very own country, in our very own community, right in our backyard, that I have to deal with these things. Then in the midst of that, in that faithfulness and following him, we could hear from the Lord, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Continue to follow me. We have to deal with this today, folks. 
We must. These are difficult things that no doubt, for me, there's many of these things. I was talking with Pastor Bobby about it yesterday. I was talking with Ashley about it. Like There are things here that I have had the wrong outlook on for a long time that I've been sort of disillusioned by, or I've thought, oh, you know, I'm okay. I've convinced myself that I'm okay to just not engage in this particular issue because maybe I'm doing this or because whatever the case may be. And I'm asking you to allow the Lord to deal with those things in your heart too, that if there's anything here that I've mentioned today, if there's one thing, you know, that struck a nerve, maybe you know that, hey, this is what the Lord's calling me to. I know it. It's, it's not an issue of know that I don't agree, but more an issue of just, Lord, okay, I've got to surrender to this. Or maybe it was something that you thought, ooh, I, I don't agree with that. That's uncomfortable for me. Then, then take that piece and give it to the Lord, but be willing to allow him to show you in his word what, as the church, we should do to address these issues. That's what I'm asking you to commit to. If you would, just agree with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, I, I won't pretend to try and put anything on anybody else, so maybe it's just me this morning. But I look at these things and I say they're difficult. And maybe it's because of our culture, Lord. Whatever it is, these are issues that are addressed within the word, yet, Lord, as the church in America, we don't necessarily seek to correct these things. We don't seek to get involved in these things. We, we fail far too often, Lord, to truly live out the mandate we see within the word that we must go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And that coupled with that, that we are to love our neighbors. Lord, we have a responsibility as a church that I think far too often we've failed at. And I just ask, Lord, as I've already stated here this morning, that your spirit would work in each of our hearts here and today, myself included. And that if there'd be even just one thing, Lord, that you could work within us that would cause us to act differently, to lead differently, to choose differently, Lord, to be willing to step out in faith, to forego some comfort, some safety. And, and maybe for somebody here, it's opening up that seat at their table for someone who they wouldn't otherwise normally allow into their lives. Maybe it's getting involved in a particular ministry, whether here at church or an organization in the area. Maybe it's a boldness in stepping out and sharing their faith at an outreach. And whatever that first step is, Lord, show us that we could be a church that's truly seeking to be the church, Lord, to be active and be advocating for the value and the purpose of every single human life, life that's made in the image of God. Lord, do that work in us, Lord, I pray. Teach us, Lord, and show us what you desire, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.